Broadcasting. The PSS you hear on Miller and Condon and iHeartMedia Des Moines are presented in part by Nick Mick. We take care of our own. Now, here's Miller and Condon, live from the DraftKings Sportsbook and Wild Rose Studio. This is Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO. Tech, Nina. Kansas City. You ready? You ready? Three, two, one, go. Welcome to the Hour. It is Miller and Condon on 1460 KXNO and now 106.3 FM. Ken, he is in Vegas for work. He'll be back on Wednesday. It is me taking you home here until noon over your lunch hour. Right now, we're going to get into the Super Bowl with Nick Athen from Chiefs Insider on Twitter. That's where you can find him. PrimetimeSportsTalk.com is where you can find all the work of Nick Athen. Well, Nick, here we are. It is Super Bowl week, 50 years <laughs> And the Kansas City Chiefs will be playing on Sunday. Take me through this past week. I mean, the buildup, I'm sure it's already getting to be very long for you as a fan and as somebody that, that covers the team. But this week, the, the buildup and just, I know you're going to Miami, everything that's happened there. Take us through the last week for you. You know, it's just been kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm a little different. I've actually just kind of enjoyed the process. I've enjoyed the moment, the time, talking to people I haven't talked to in 20, 25 years people in the business who I've talked to in probably longer. Um, you know, as a fan first, uh, just to, you know, remember all the things that I've gone through to get to this point, and now that it's finally here, you just kind of put it in your past, and, you know, everything's different now. The Mahomes era is real, it's legit. Any questions lingering that maybe he can't get us to the big game, you know, all those things are done. And so I've just, I've just enjoyed it, read a lot of stuff. You know, listen to people say, give their opinions on the game, and just all the fans and just kind of in this together. It's going to be a great party week, and uh, I'm just looking forward to it all. The buildup has been absolutely immense, as you can imagine, 50 years in the making. For you as a, a somebody in this, you're in the Chiefs timeline, you know Kansas City, but you're not there anymore. You're removed from Kansas City. Do you wish right. at, at this moment that you were back and living in KC? For the moment, yes. And, and if they win, am I going to go home for the parade? Probably so. Yeah. I don't want to miss that. I was at the first parade. Uh, actually, there were two ceremonies when the Chiefs came back from Super Bowl Four. I was on my dad's shoulders, and during the uh, and and the the team came by, and I was slapping high fives with you know my heroes at the time. And uh, yeah, so I'd probably head back to Kansas City. But the, you know, it, listen, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I'm a nostalgia guy. Yes, I'd be lo- I'd love to be living in Kansas City, but there's so many people coming down to Miami that I'm going to be able to hang out with for a couple of days and, and just enjoy and reminisce and, and uh, you know, just, just have a good time and celebrate it all. Just kind of take it in as, for what it is. But, yeah, uh, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I definitely wouldn't mind being in Kansas City this weekend. You know, Nick, I can't actually go to the game. I, I haven't seen a whole lot of, of conversation yet about ticket prices. I've seen a few things. You know, it's up a little mm-hmm. bit from what maybe they're anticipating for Miami. And, and obviously, Kansas City has a lot to do with it. San Francisco's been there. But yep. I'm just thinking of, of those long-suffering fans, and they said, I don't care what it takes. I don't have, care what's happening yep. in my life. Credit card's getting out, and we're going to do this when they get there. There's got to be just a slew of people with that conversation happening at home right now. Oh, yeah, it's just crazy. I mean, I, I, I started kind of prepping in advance, and, was trying to line up some tickets with some former players to get tickets. And, 
You know, when the prices started to go up, I mean, right now, a, 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 a walk-in ticket, standing room only, a $900 ticket is selling for almost $5,000. There's a couple in Kansas City who paid $38,000 for two tickets in the front row behind the Chiefs bench for Super Bowl. Um, and I kind of dropped it. But when it, when it started to go to four or 5000 for lower-level tickets, I'm thinking, you know, I know how bad I want to go, but, you know, I can't just take two people. i got to take four. That's twenty grand. <laughs> you know what? I just don't. I, that's, that's a down payment on a house, though. You know, don't, don't get me wrong. It's not like I didn't think about it. And if some tickets come up, you know, uh, toward, the, toward the game and, and I get a chance, I'll probably go get them. But, uh, yeah, it's, this will be the highest uh, paid per ticket Super Bowl in its history. No question. Absolutely incredible. Well, tell us a little bit what you have going on this week at Primetime Sports Talk, what you're going to be working on as you get ready for the Super Bowl. You know, just a lot of, uh, a lot of Super Bowl talk. I mean, the good thing about the site is, you know, we've got people who aren't just from Kansas City. They're all over the place. So we're going to get a lot of, a lot of opinions from different fans and different writers around the country. And uh, for yours truly, put a few pieces up, you know, what this means to me personally, and then uh, kind of get down to the X's and O's and, and uh, obviously, you know who I'm going to pick to win, but the X's and O's are why I think the Chiefs will win uh, coming up toward the end of the week. Very loose team, it appears. They're getting off the plane in Miami. They're all wearing Hawaiian shirts and homage to uh, their man, Andy Reid, there. Yep. You just tell. I mean, this team, and it's not just happy to be there. There's a whole lot more there. Yeah, you know what's interesting? I mean, they, 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 there was a lot of raw, raw celebration when they got off the plane. Unlike the 49ers, it just seemed to be all giddy, happy to be there. I mean, the Chiefs are all business. I mean, they're staying pretty far away from Miami, um, you know, so they can focus. Um, I think it's, it's, it's all business for these guys. They have a plan. They have a purpose. You know, they set out a goal after that, in that locker room after the AFC Championship loss you know, to the Patriots, and they work toward everything. It's, it's very similar to what the 2014 and 2015 Royals did. You know, everybody thought they'd be there. They ended up getting there. Um, you know, they're focused, and, and they want to win this for their head coach. I mean, to a man, they love Andy Reid. I think that the narrative on Andy Reid has clearly changed within the fan base. I don't think there's a there's an NFL person, a former one of his players, the head coaches around the league, executives who know Andy saying, "Hey, you know, let's get this monkey off his back and we can put him definitely into the Hall of Fame." And we never have to bring up he can't win the big game. And I think the players have taken a hold of that. And and apparent by what they were wearing the Hawaiian shirts yesterday as an homage to the coach, um, I, I think they're focused. Um, I think they want to win this for Andy Reid and for the fan base, but uh, you know, I, I think that's what's driving them right now, which is a good thing. Getting ready for Super Bowl Fifty Four as we're talking with Nick Athen, primetime sports talk as we look at the Kansas City Chiefs. You know, there's a narrative right now as we get into the game and what we're going to see on the field on Sunday that Kansas City can't afford what happened the first two weeks of the playoffs. <laughs> they can't afford to dig themselves right. a hole against this 49er team. I've heard it. I've heard the theory behind it and the justification behind it. I don't know if I believe it, and I don't believe it because of Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, you know, they kind of have the Rocky Balboa mentality, you know. And he had to be hit like four or five times from Apollo Creed and get knocked around a little bit, thinking that he's going to go down, or even if he does go down, he gets back up and he whoops them. And I just think that's their mentality. I think that's just a, you know, they, they never panic. Mahomes doesn't panic. Um, true leadership of what he did on the sidelines in the Texans game, um, you know, come, getting everybody refocused and a couple of breaks here, a couple of plays, you know, and then they ran away with that game. And I just think that if they can hit in the mouth, oh, that's okay. We got this. No worries. So, um, I, I, listen, 
I, I can see why people are going to pick the 49ers, you know, and if the Chiefs get down, they're going to try and smash mouth the ball. But, you know, that running style is very similar to one that the Chiefs have been around for a long time. It's kind of the same running style, the downhill as the Broncos had. You know, they stopped Henry. Um, I think they're going to be in a good position. They're taking the stop of the run as a badge of honor. You know, and again, if Jimmy Garoppolo has to throw the ball to win this football game, I like the Chiefs' chances. And I like the Chiefs' defense here as well to kind of step up and continue what they're doing. But, yeah, you know, the narrative is really kind of that, you know, if they get down, the 49ers are just going to run away with it. And I just I just don't see that. I'm right there with you. We're talking with Nick Athens, Super Bowl 54, Chiefs and 49ers. How about the speed of this defense for the 49ers? This is a different kind of defense, certainly, than they've seen the first couple of weeks. I mean, the, the Texans, obviously, not a good defensive team. And though the Titans right. were better, this is a big step up in competition. The offensive line has been okay this year. Is that fair to say for the Chiefs? That speed off the edge has got to be at least a little concerning. Yeah, well, the good news is they've got, you know, they've got book tackles that are pretty good. Eric Fisher has played his best year as a pro. You got Mitchell Schwartz on the other side. If they're weak a little bit, it's in the interior, but they put Wisniewski out there and he has changed that offensive line. I mean, he, he's really plugging up the gap, you know, between the center and the guard. Um, you know, I, I think, listen, the 49ers have a terrific amount of speed. They've got a great, great front seven, um, one in which the Chiefs are going to have to, you know, be in high gear. So I think you're going to see a lot of plays designed to go over that front seven. Uh, whether it be around them, screen passes, you're going to see uh, probably a lot of 15, 20-yard routes. Um, you're going to see a lot of misdirection, you know, just to kind of keep them guessing and keep them running. But this is a really solid defense. Uh, that they're, I mean, in fact, both sides of the line for the 49ers are terrific. Uh, but they're going to have to be aggressive. Uh, they're going to have to do a lot of counter moves. They're going to have to do a lot of uh, traps and pulls and, and get Mahomes out of the pocket and, and get him some extra time because, I think the 49ers have probably the, the, the best pass rush in the NFL. Uh, they certainly have proven that. Um, you know, D. Ford's playing really well. He's, he's not injured anymore, which is, you know, a good thing for the 49ers and, and Bosa. I mean, they got, they got guys who can get after it. But I think the Chiefs offensive line is experienced enough um, and they're talented enough that I think they can, they can give Mahomes the time he needs. Nick, uh, final thing for you, and I know you've kind of alluded to this at different times during our conversation. We'll go a little bit deeper into the game when we talk to you again on Friday uh, and kick things off there. But the future of Kansas City and what this organization can be with Patrick Mahomes. You know, we've seen this a lot. You get these quarterbacks and they rise onto the scene. You got them on the rookie deal, and you have a lot more flexibility with what you can do. As you look towards the future, I know Patrick Mahomes is going to command probably the biggest contract in NFL history. The future of Kansas City and building that team around him going forward. Well, this is going to be a big challenge for Brett Beach, but but I think one thing that fans aren't accounting for, um, you know, and, and I'm a little privy to some of the details on what's what's going on moving forward. And I can tell you this: on paper, yeah, it'll be the richest contract in NFL history for a quarterback until someone else breaks it. But Patrick Mahomes is not going to sacrifice getting other guys paid, uh, making sure the team around him stays solid, make sure they can keep the core together. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think you're going to see, oh, it's all about me. I personally don't think Patrick Mahomes cares all that much about the money. Um, you know, he's got a good agent in Lee Steinberg, and, and you know, Patrick is going to be just fine financially, but... I think the contract will be structured in a way kind of like what Tom Brady did, you know, in New England. And he constantly maneuvered 
the, the structure of the deal and, and took some stuff off on the on the table and you know converted it to signing bonus and was able to spread it out. So I think you're going to see all this. I mean, listen, Patrick Mahomes is driven by the desire to win Super Bowls and to win it for the fans of Kansas City, and he's just a winner. And I don't think he's going to sacrifice Chris Jones not getting paid or, you know, uh, you know, a couple of other guys that want to come and freeze. So listen, I got a list of about five guys, and I can't name the names I already know are going to want to sign with the Chiefs. And they aren't going to get rich coming to Kansas City because they, they want to win a Super Bowl with Mahomes at quarterback. So a lot of maneuvering will happen, but he's not going to break the bank or, 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 or circumvent the cap, the cap. Now, two things to keep in mind real quick. One, the salary cap's going up next year in the last year of their deal. And then the new labor deal, that salary cap's going to push up quite a bit. So I think that's more than enough to soften the blow of whatever the cap number is for Patrick. Good stuff. Hey, Nick, we will talk again later in the week. Get ready for the game. Super Bowl 54, the Chiefs and the 49ers. Be good, Nick. Appreciate your time. All right, buddy. Thanks for having me on. We'll talk to you Friday. All right, Nick Athen here. Joining us, Chiefs Insider on Twitter. That's where you can find him, part of Primetime Sports Talk here on Miller & Condon. We're going to take a timeout. Still lots more to come this hour. We're going to talk with Rob Doster coming up next from NBCSports.com. A lot of college basketball talk with him. And, of course, we'll get into the tragic passing of Kobe Bryant. That's coming your way here in just a couple of minutes. But before that, it's time to pay your bills with 1460 KXNO. And now on 106.3 FM, text the keyword BALL to 200-200 right now. That's your chance to win $1,000. That's BALL to 200-200. You'll get a confirmation text and info. Standard data and message rates apply in this nationwide contest. And a quick update with that. Looking forward to the Super Bowl. The point spread continues to stay pretty much at the same spot at William Hill. Kansas City currently a one-point favorite. Looking at a bunch of Vegas casinos right now. My buddy Chris Andrews at the South Point currently has the Chiefs favored by one and a half. You're going to find one, one and a half, depending on where you're going. The Westgate has it at one. MGM has it at one, one and a half at bet MGM. So different new numbers out there. Basically at one point. Number is what we're going to get. Of course, a lot more on the prop bets later in the week. Last week, Ken and I, we talked about the MVP. That's one of my favorite ones to do. We'll get into some cross-sport bets. We'll do a lot on that later on this week, and uh, we'll see if we can get maybe Ken to to throw some prop bets out there on Friday's show. We'll make our picks. I bet on Kansas City from the get-go. I don't see myself changing this week on that. Ken was on the 49ers right way. I don't see him changing away from that. We're going to be heads up, and in fact, we'll be heads up for our football contest, our picks contest throughout the year. Both of us over 50% on the season. Ken, though, he's been able to chip away. I had a huge lead at the beginning of the season, but he's come back. He went 2-0 in the championship games. I was 1-1, and now he has a slight lead. If we go that way, he takes the Niners. I at trackphone.com. Sports Station 1460 KXNO, and now 106.3 FM. I'm Trent and solo today. Lucky for you, though. Got lots of great guests lined up to talk with you, the world of sports, and joining us right now, well, maybe the self-proclaimed best of the guests. He is Rob Doster from NBCSports.com. What's happening, Doster? What's going on, man? How you doing? Not too bad. Um, you know, talked about this throughout the program today. Robin, want to get your perspective. So I'm nearing 40 years old, almost the same age as Kobe Bryant. 
the passing yesterday, it, it, it struck me in a different way, A, because I was traveling. I was going over to Iowa City to the women's basketball game to watch Megan Gustafson have her number retired, brought my four-year-old daughter. I wasn't a Kobe fan as a basketball player. He wasn't my guy. I was a Jordan guy first, and now I'm a LeBron guy. I just I love watching LeBron play. And he was a guy that, on the hardwood, just I never connected with him in the same way. But as I've seen him grow and I've seen what he's done in retirement, and you have a little bit more time to reflect, maybe it was just be, me being hard-headed at the time and not wanting somebody that was going to replace Jordan. Maybe that has something to do with it. But as I look back and, and what happened yesterday and looking back at his life as a basketball player and what he did for his daughters and what happened, of course, in the tragic helicopter accident. I don't know. It, it struck me in a lot different way than I guess I would have anticipated if I knew it was coming. Yeah, it was it was a surreal day yesterday dealing with uh, with the fallout from that. And, and you know, for me, it wasn't it wasn't so much that that Kobe died that that kind of threw me for a loop. It was the fact that he was on the helicopter with his daughter. It was the fact that the entire reason that he has this helicopter and he uses this helicopter to commute is because he wants to be able to spend more time uh, with his children. You know, there's an interview he did with, um, I believe it was Eton Thomas a couple years ago, where he talked about this and he literally said uh, the biggest issue that he was having, uh, you know, in his life was that he couldn't, he, he couldn't get to him from his house to the Staples Center fast enough, that he would be missing, uh, you know, uh, class concerts and recitals and, and things that he should be there for as a dad. So part of the reason why he's flying his helicopters is to be able to um, be more omnipresent in the life of his children. And uh, it's just such a cruel coincidence that, um, you know, as he's taking his daughter to a basketball game, uh, where she's kind of, uh, she was growing into being something of, uh, you know, the the women's basketball version of Bronny, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, that that they happened to uh, to crash. So it was that's what got me was was the idea that he was out here being the best dad that he can be, and um, it cost him his life. And the, the reason why, and I, I think I could speak for a lot of people when I say this, the reason why I was sort of torn up about it was I kept putting myself in that situation, right? Like as a parent, and, and Trent, you know this. Literally, the only thing that you want to do as a parent is to be able to keep your kids happy and safe and give them what they want in life and, and set them up for success. And to be in a helicopter where you know something has gone wrong, you know what the inevitable ending is going to be, and then you know that there's absolutely nothing that you are able to do about it. Just putting myself in that situation, I couldn't stop doing it. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I couldn't imagine uh, what those final um, minutes and moments were like once he kind of realized uh, what was going to happen and, and, and how this thing was going to play out. So that's kind of what got me and, and the reason why yesterday was so difficult. It wasn't because I had some great personal relationship or anything like that with Kobe Bryant. It's that I think every parent on the planet can can imagine what it was like, for, not just for Kobe. You know, for the, there was, uh, I, I guess, three of Gianna's teammates were on there and, and their parents too. So um, knowing what they probably dealt with during those final moments is just, it's heartbreaking, man, and you know it, it shouldn't be a tragedy. It's a tragedy, even if uh, the name like Kobe Bryant wasn't involved with this. But it just puts it on such a bigger uh, perspective. It does. You were uh, pretty outright yesterday. I saw on Twitter you had a couple of clips of NBA games. One was a Tyson Chandler that was crying on the bench, and and you could see the impact that it had. You believe that those games shouldn't have been played yesterday, and as you look more and more at it, I can completely understand where you're coming from. 
Yeah, you know, and I understand how difficult it would be logistically to postpone them. Um, you know, think about how you have teams like playing on the road. You know, you have Toronto playing in San Antonio, and, and it's not like uh, Toronto is going to be – it's not an easy trip for a team in Toronto to get to San Antonio. And it's not easy to clear clear out an arena, you know, 30 minutes before a game is supposed to tip off. So I understand all of that. But it's also – got to remember that, like, the guys on that court are actual – they're the ones that are actually – friends with Kobe. They're the ones that actually have a personal relationship. They're the ones that are actually grieving someone that they uh, you know, they could legitimately call a friend uh, or maybe a mentor or maybe a teammate, maybe uh, someone that they played against, whatever it was. Those are the people that actually knew him. And asking them 30 minutes after they find out that, that their friend has died, to uh, their friend and his daughter has, has died to go out and play a basketball game, something that is just so meaningless in the big picture, just it, it seems silly to do that. There's no possible way that anybody could focus on it. And, you know, I get the angle. Is something that people kept saying to me is, well, these guys, uh, you know, the, the fans paid for the tickets. The fans want to see this all happen. They, they paid to get there. And you know what? If you paid for a ticket and you're going to go out there and see a bunch of people that are grieving the fact that they just learned that a friend of theirs had died, um, you're, you're going to go watch them, like, go through the motions on a basketball court. Is that really worth the money that you paid for a ticket? So uh, I, I just – I understand why the NBA felt like they were in a position where they kind of had to do, um, had to play these games and had to keep them going. I just, it was not pleasant to see those players go through that and those human beings go through that, uh, you know, kind of um, live. You know, more or less, we saw the reactions live as they found out that Kobe Bryant had died. So it was not, that was, I don't think that was an enjoyable experience for anybody. And it just makes no sense to me. Dude, when you know that's how it's going to play out, why do you even bother doing it? Rob Doster, NBC Sports, joining us here. There is no smooth transition, so let's just transition over and get to the reason we have you on every week, Rob, and that is to talk college basketball. One of my favorite parts of my routine on Mondays is being able to listen to your podcast and your overreactions from the weekend. That comes for me, though, in the afternoon. So have I had a chance? Is it out yet? Is the overreaction pod out yet? Yes, it's out, it's up, it's live, it's published, and uh, and I guess, you know, actually one of the overreactions had to do with the Big Ten, where I said that I don't think the Big Ten is going to have a very good showing in the NCAA tournament. Mm. And the reason why I'm saying that is, you know, I, I was kind of struck by something the other day, and it never really, I guess I had realized this, but I never thought about it in this way. The end of the Illinois-Michigan game, there were four centers on the floor. You had <laughs> Kofi Coburn. Uh-huh. You had Georgie uh, Vili, You had Austin Davis, and you had John Teske. And those are hardly the only two teams in that conference that want to play two kind of low-post players. One of them is actually right there in your state, Iowa. Uh-huh. I think they're at their best when they have Ryan Kreiner and, uh, and obviously Luca Garza on the floor together. Uh, you know, you look at Michigan State and Tom Izzo, you know, he wants to have Xavier Tillman and another big man out there. Um, and you kind of go down the list, and, and every team in that conference has a very, very, very good big man. And every team in that conference tends to want to play two big men together. And that's it feels like that is literally the only league on the planet where they play basketball where you want to play two big men together. And I, I'm just I'm thinking about it, and it's like, how is that going to work? You know, you look at the teams that have won uh, national titles in recent years. You had Villanova win in 2018, where they spread everybody out. 
Their five-man shot 42% from three, Amari Spellman. Uh, they completely played Yudoka um, Azabuki off the floor when they played uh, uh, Kansas in the Final Four that season. You look at, the, obviously, Villanova won in 2016. You look at the 2019 Virginia team. The reason that they made it to the national title and the, that they were able to turn things around is because Tony Bennett stopped playing two big men together. He finally smartened up, and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put DeAndre Hunter at the four because he is the perfect small ball form. There has never been a human being that has been more uh, uh, more perfectly suited to playing that role than DeAndre Hunter was. And the reason why Virginia won the national title instead of losing in the first round to UNBC is because they stopped playing two big guys. And you go through and you look at all of the best Big Ten teams, and they all play two big guys. And the other part of it is, who are the elite point guards in the Big Ten? Obviously, Cassius Winston yep. is one of them. Uh, when he is when he is right, and I, I'm not, he has not. He's been good this year. Uh, he, I don't think he's been better than he was last season, and I don't think he's been anywhere near as good as we thought he was going to be. I think you can say Ayo Desunmu is right there in that conversation for uh, best point guards in the country, um, and I think that in theory Anthony Cowan should be on that list. So that's oh, let's call it two and a half, right? Sure. Xavier Simpson, really good, but I, I, he's not a guy that I trust to go out and like win me a national title. I he can't shoot. Piece. Yeah, he can't shoot. Um, and, you know, he can make free throws. And, and it's kind of, he limits you offensively in that way. So that becomes a little bit of a problem. Marcus Carr is like really, really good half the time. And then the other half of the time, he's not really all that good at all. And I think we kind of saw that against Michigan State uh, on, on Sunday. So there's not great point guard play in that league. And if you go back and look in the last decade, every team except for 2012 Kentucky that won the national title, basically played two point guards. It was Kihei Clark and Ty Jerome in 2019. It was uh, Jalen Brunson and Mikhail Bridges and Dante DiVincenzo and Phil Booth. And, you know, it, it was almost like uh, Villanova played you know, three or four combo guards, lead guard, point guards on the floor together. In, in 2017, it was Nate Britt and Joel Berry on North Carolina. In 2016, Ryan Erskine and Jalen Brunson. 2015, it was Tyus Jones and Quick Coat. 2014, it was Shabazz Napier and Ryan Bowman. 2013, Peyton Seaver, Russ Smith. 2011, Kevin Walker, Shabazz Napier. 2010, Nolan Smith, John Shire. Two elite point guards on every one of those teams that won a national championship. And we're saying, what, there are two elite point guards in the Big Ten total? Now, this is a weird year in college basketball, so literally anything can happen. And, uh, you know, I would not be surprised to see this be the season where playing uh, five big men together is what's going to win you the national title. It could happen. This season has just been that weird. But uh, history suggests that it's not the easiest thing to do to go out and win a national title without having at least one, if not two, uh, really good starting point guards. How many teams can make a Final Four? I mean, is it short of the 16 and 15 seeds, pretty much anybody in the bracket? bracket it, it, it's almost trending that direction because – the direction doesn't seem that good, and maybe that's a question more when you're getting towards the bottom of the bracket here. You're talking about teams just sneaking in. You're looking at a team like Northern Iowa that could get in as an at-large, NC State, Syracuse, teams like that. I don't know. In this crazy year, could we see teams like that make a run, much like VCU did, what, a decade ago? I think there are going to be a couple of teams at that level. I think the big problem is, though, that there just aren't going to be that many good teams. And, and you know, you look at some of the bracket projections right now, and the teams that are just sneaking in are like, we're talking about like Virginia, or we're talking about 
uh, you know, teams that don't really have the makeup for someone that can win four games in March. So while I do think that there's going to be a lot of teams in that, like, one through six seed range that can be able to put together, string together four wins, it just it doesn't feel like the kind of season where there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, teams in that, like, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven range that are real threats to, to win four straight games in March. Now, the teams that are going to be interesting to keep an eye on is someone like a, maybe like an East Tennessee State or somebody like a Yale or somebody, you know, you just mentioned Northern Iowa, uh, maybe even like a Liberty. Teams that are some of those like really elite mid-major programs that we know have great coaching, that we know have the pedigree to be able to go out and beat some good teams. Those are going to be the ones I think that might be able to make a little bit of a run. Uh, but it's all going to depend on whether or not they actually get in. Like, I don't think any of those teams have a strong enough profile to be able to to get an at-large bit to the tournament. So, like, talking about East Tennessee State as a potential, like, Final Four team, like, let's worry about winning three straight games in the SoCon tournament before we worry about whether or not they can win four straight games in the NCAA tournament. Rob, help me out. The game of the weekend, Kentucky down uh, in Lubbock against Texas Tech. Goes to overtime. It was a fun one. I was out to dinner with the wife, so I didn't want to look away towards the TV too often as we're eating together. But, boy, this Kentucky team, I watch them at times, and they look excellent. They look like a team that can win the national title. And then I watch them other nights, like uh, they did a couple weeks ago against South Carolina, and they were awful. Where do you put this Kentucky team? I, I mean, they're they're definitely a team that can make a run. You know, I think... One of the big things that we saw on Saturday was like this was a matchup where they needed Nick Richards to be awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Texas Tech is they're really good at scheming uh, defensively to take away certain players and certain actions of certain teams. Um, so I, I knew that Tyrese Maxey wasn't probably going to end up having a good game, and I knew that Ashton Hayes was going to be limited because those were probably going to be the two guys that, that Chris Beard really focused on taking away. Uh, the problem was I, like. Texas Tech does not have any size inside, and anybody that's watched the Big 12 knows that. Like, they play Chris Clark at the four, and uh, when they have to take T.J. Holyfield out, then they play Chris Clark at the five. And that's just not going to work when you're going up against a team that has an elite big man. And now, apparently, Nick Richards is an elite big man. And he went out 24, uh, 25 points, 14 rebounds, four blocks, just completely took that game over. And to me, that was kind of the sign that was like, okay, I think that this Kentucky team is, is – finally arrived because their two best players were more or less shut down and the guy that they needed to take over who in basically two and a half years has never really taken over a game at that level went out and did it and won the game all on his own so uh, I, I still do think that Kentucky's probably trending towards like a four seed you know there's not a lot of great wins available in the big 12 and they've already obviously lost to Evansville and lost to Utah and lost in South Carolina so they have some ugly uh, losses on their resume, but this is a, they're always going to be a threat. You know, Tyrese Maxey, Ashton Hagen, Emmanuel Quickly, Nick Richards is as good as of a you know of a core four as anybody in college basketball. Big Twelve. We uh, will mention Texas Tech. They're going to be there. They're going to be a tournament team, I think, at the very least. And we'll see what that young group can come together. And Beard certainly uh, deserves credit. What he's you done know, the last honestly, couple of years. I don't, I don't, I don't know if they're going to be a tournament team. Like, no? I, I didn't realize this until I like actually dove into their resume on on Saturday night. These are, so how about this? They're twelve and seven on the season. Uh-huh. Like, they have one quad one win. They all are obviously that's the the neutral site game against uh, Louisville, Louisville, Texas. Yeah. They're, they're, I'm sorry, in uh, in Madison Square Garden. They're one and seven 
in quad one games. Mm. They have two quad two wins, which I believe was Iowa State and Oklahoma State, and then they have a quad three win um, as well. But eight of their wins are against teams outside the top 200 in the net. And, like, so they didn't play anybody in the non-conference. Obviously, they played Louisville. But they didn't really play anybody else, and they didn't really beat anybody else is the bigger thing. You know, they lost the game to Iowa, and they lost, I think it was Iowa and Creighton at DePaul. And, uh, you know, of course, those were without Jemias Ramsey, but uh, you can kind of factor in those losses, but it doesn't, like, make any more, it doesn't add more wins. Like, you don't flip those losses to wins just because that guy wasn't there. And there's no guarantee they would have actually won that game if he was there. And so you're kind of looking at it, and right now, they're literally the last team in in the bracket for our uh, most recent uh, bracket projection. And I think they're probably going to be able to, to compile enough wins to get it done. You know, it's not easy to win in Lubbock, but it's also worth noting that they've now lost to Baylor and to Kentucky at home, which are two game, uh, in close games, which are two wins that they probably needed to get. So um, I, I don't think that they're assuming by any stretch of the imagination. And, and part of the problem is, you know, it, this is a very flawed roster. I don't think we appreciated enough uh, what the loss of Matt Moody and Tariq Owens meant to this team. They were both 23 years old. Uh, both of those guys are now playing in the NBA on NBA rosters. Mooney, we talk about the loss of Jared Cole, right, as, as a playmaker, as a go-to scorer. But Mooney's presence, is not only as a point guard, uh, but someone that can make shots, someone that can create something on, on his own, and someone that could take the pressure off of Jarrett Culver and be able to, you know, initiate offense and do all that kind of stuff, they don't have that this year, right? They don't have a point guard on their roster. Um, Kyler Edwards probably should be that guy, but I just don't think he's ready to be that guy. So they're kind of in this situation where they have to rely on uh, a sophomore-year version of Kyler Edwards that is not ready to be the guy they need him to be when Davide Moretti and Jemias Ramsey just aren't, Creators, right? They're shot makers. They're scorers. They're the guys that finish a play. They're not the guys that, that create a play. That's a problem. The other problem is they just don't have a in size. You know, Tariq Owens was a guy that can make a three. And he's a great lob target, and he was one of the best defensive fives that you're going to find in college basketball. And they're replacing him with TJ Holyfield. Like, all due respect to TJ Holyfield, <laughs> who, um, like, he's a fine rotation player, yeah. right? If you had him backing up Tariq Owens, that's not a problem. But the problem comes when he is the only five-man on your roster that is able to get minutes at this level. So uh, I think that this Texas Tech team is just kind of inherently flawed. And to me, the fact that we're talking about them as a potential tournament team says everything about the respect that Chris Beard gets as a head coach as opposed to the talent on that roster and how good they've been this season. It's so weird watching Texas Tech. You mentioned just how the roster, how they fit together. Watching Chris Clark you know, run the point for them. Not only is he, you know, six six and kind of thick out there, and he wears number forty four. He just he looks so uncomfortable doing it. I know his assist rate's really good. He's played good at that level, but no, I, I think it kind of impacts the point that you're making there. This is an odd Texas Tech team, and Chris Beard credit to him putting this group together. Big Twelve as a whole, how big is the gap between Baylor and everyone else? I don't think it's really all that big. You know, if you look at some of the advanced metrics. Uh, West Virginia is right there, right behind Baylor, and Kansas is actually no, the number one team on Ken Palm right now, I believe. So, mm-hmm. um, part of part of the thing that makes Baylor so good is one, uh, they are very, very good defensively, and they can kind of they 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 smother everything that you want to do, so they don't have to play great offensively to win. They just have to make big plays, and that's the other thing about them is that 
they're veterans. They are. Uh, they have like four or five different ways that they can beat you, whether it is getting to the offensive glass or, um, you know, Jared Butler or Davion Mitchell or Macy O.T. or, you know, Devontae Van Du has been a guy that stepped up and, and uh, made like 100 big shots this season. So um, uh, to me, that the big thing about Baylor is that there's no team that's been better at executing in clutch situations and in big situations and the big moments and then. And that's why you see them winning all of these close games. And, you know, I think that's part of the reason why uh, they look so good in some of these, like, results-oriented metrics, but in the predictive metrics that rely on possession-by-possession stuff where uh, they, they factor in, like, scoring margin and all that, they don't necessarily look at Baylor as, as good because, you know, this is not a team built for just running you off the floor. They're built for beating you, like, 70 to 62. You know, that's, that's kind of what they are. And maybe some of that will, uh, you know, regression will hit a little bit mm-hmm. in the NCAA tournament and they won't, they'll, they'll stop making all these big shots. But like, <laughs> at some point you kind of just have to say, like, you know what, maybe, maybe this team is just elite at executing and there's no team in the country that's more confident when it comes to uh, key possessions than, than Baylor. So, um, I, I think at this point they're probably the closest thing that we have to an elite team in college basketball, but I really don't think that the margin between them and everybody else is is that much bigger until you get to the final five. We'll get you out on this. Iowa tonight hosting Wisconsin. Badgers have certainly had Iowa's number throughout the years, going back to the Bo Ryan days. Iowa favored by five and a half, six points. I know you like to wager there in Jersey. You got to pick tonight's uh, game, lay in the five and a half. Are you going to grab them with the Badgers? Oh, man, that one's tough. Because Wisconsin's actually had a little bit of success on the road this year. They but. You know what? I'm going to say I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to take the points there because I do expect this to be a close game, and six just seems like a lot of points for a Wisconsin team that we know is going to slow the ball down, and that should be able to have uh, guys that can you know match up with uh, Luca Garza and, and, and Ryan Kreiner a little bit. You know, I, I'm not. I don't think Micah Potter is going to stop Luca Garza, but I think when you have Micah Potter and, and Nate Reavers, you can kind of throw enough bodies at him to. Uh, maybe limit them a little bit, but maybe I'm just overthinking that one too much. But I, I think I would probably take the points in that situation. You know, it's because it seems like a little too much. Well, and looking at Wisconsin, I'm a little bit surprised they haven't played Potter and Reavers together. You talk about two two big guys in the Big Ten, and they're the one team that seemingly hasn't done that at all this season, playing those two big guys together. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't. I, I think part of it is that Michael Potter is, is kind of. Uh, you know, they built everything around at the start of the season having just Nate Reavers. Yeah. And Michael Potter came in and got eligible in the middle of the year. So I would not be surprised to see them working some of those uh, two big looks more, especially because Reavers can, can step out and knock down the shot a little bit. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it'll be interesting to see how that happens. And, and, you know, to be honest, it might actually be better for the matchup if they don't do that, simply because then you're kind of forcing – Either one of Kreiner or Garza that guard on the perimeter, and that's the uh, if there's an Achilles heel for Iowa, it's, it's the fact that they are not great when it comes to stopping penetration on the perimeter. Well, one thing for you, it's Kreiner. I know it looks like Kreiner, but it's Kreiner. Kreiner? Yes, it's Kreiner. So oh, man. something to put in the notebook there, and uh, another pronunciation for you to figure out. What do you got? 351 teams. Let's see, about a dozen guys each. Guy. So what? We're talking about 4,500 names. You got to memorize Ryan Kreiner. So I got I got Bishonis Vili right, yes. but I couldn't get I couldn't get Ryan Creener. Couldn't get Ryan Creener. Couldn't get Ryan Creener. my life. We'll do it better next <laughs> week. What do you say, Rob? Sounds like a plan to me, man. 
Have a good one. That's Rob Doster joining us. NBCSports.com, college basketball talk over there. He does a great job, him, Travis Hines, Scott Phillips, the whole crew, putting out college basketball content and always loving talking hoops with him. Quick timeout, come back. I'll make my pick for tonight. Oh, I got an opinion on this one. Badgers and Hawkeyes will do it next here. Final segment with you here on a Monday. Miller and Condon on KXNO. We got Murph and Andy coming your way at 2 o'clock right after the Herd. 4 o'clock, it'll be the Sports Fanatics in and kicking it all off tomorrow morning with the Morning Rush with Heather, Travis, and Sean from 6 until 8. Well, as we get out of here, it is hoops tonight in a big way. Iowa 7.30 tip-off against Wisconsin. As Rob Doster just told us, I'm in the same vein here. I think I was better. I think I was a better team. I think I was a lot better than this Wisconsin outfit's going to be out there. They're going to be at their home floor. They played well on their home floor, yet it's still the Badgers, still Wisconsin, lingering thoughts, doubts, concerns that I've certainly seen throughout the year. Give me Bucky and the points tonight. Just find a way to win. Points spread doesn't matter for this one. Find a way to win. Hawks can run to five in a row, and then... It's a road trip to Maryland. We'll be back at it tomorrow to talk about it. Ted to noon. Ken will be back on Wednesday. Thanks to everybody out there for listening in. Thanks to all our great guests today. Scott Docterman, Andrew Downs, Nick Athen, Rob Doster. Find them all on the podcast page. Thanks for listening. It's Miller and Cotton on KXNO.